Hi there, welcome to The Scientific's first podcast. Michael DeLilly and I uh, created The Scientific's in order to have more communication uh, as scientists with non-scientists and scientists alike to talk about diverse topics. And in this first uh, podcast, we will talk about uh, festivals. So please enjoy uh, the podcast. You can find more information on The Scientific's um, at thescientifics.com if you wish. Um, but I'll let you enjoy the first podcast. Please rate us or let us know what you think uh, in the comments. Enjoy. Get into the topic of today, which is festivals. Um, so you and I had the chance to go to one of the biggest festivals in the world, apparently. It's highly ranked. Uh, oh. The Werchter Festival uh, in Belgium. Um, so it's an event of four days uh, with a lot of interesting artists. I just put white lies in the background with uh, the live concert that happened there. Oh, very nice. Um, so setting, can, setting the mood for the podcast. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> so people can enjoy uh, watching some white lies in the background. They can watch the, the live concert on, on the side of Worktor as well if they want to. It's all free. Awesome. Um, but the thing is, while we were uh, at the side of the festival, um, we asked ourselves a few questions, right? Yes, so, we asked ourselves a lot of questions. Yeah, we asked ourselves a lot of questions. But one of them is, why? Why do we go to festivals? And I don't know if you have any particular ideas of hypothesis on that one. Uh, why do we go to festivals? I think... Yeah. Uh, I think festivals are, are um, I think festivals probably are regarded as the epitome of the viewing experience, the, the live music experience, just because um, you can get crowds bigger than any venue, you can get um, you can get closer to the artists than mo at, than most venues. More people can get closer because of just the, the layouts, mm -hmm. uh, and it's just a place where you can hear not you know not one band, it's not not two bands, not three bands, but obviously you can hear. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Actually, I don't even know how many how many performers there were at work there over the four days. But you could hear, you know, probably over a hundred artists. Yeah. Um, that would probably take a lot of running around. But you, yeah, you just you have that variety. You have, uh, uh, you know, and hopefully you have good weather, and it just becomes a really magical <laughs> experience um, that is so memorable and and so uh, unique. Yeah, I agree. But uh, you, you talked about the good weather, but isn't it when it's raining and it's like you're in the, those miserable conditions because you're not the only one you have all the crowd in which you share these conditions uh let's say uh it's awful weather, so it might yeah. also contribute to the festival feeling like it's kind of a, a sentiment of unity like yeah i definitely in the same shitty weather if you want to say it like that yeah i definitely think there's a sense of camaraderie uh and a sense of uh shared experience shared atmosphere shared mood you know and i, I think uh i think it's a type of place where it's really easy to talk to a stranger and you know you probably have a lot in common with the people there because you probably want to hear the same performers so yeah i think it's uh i think that's that's an experience that definitely doesn't happen at other venues when you go listen to music live i think yeah yeah indeed although there are a lot of people um at live concerts uh, like uh, the venues uh as well right but it doesn't seem to gather in the same, in the same mentality or less yeah. at least. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
But it's funny that you said people actually feel closer to the artists. That what you said, right? I think so. I, I I think, I think, I mean, I guess it depends. You know, if you're if you're at if you're in the standing section in front of, of an, an arena or in a, a theater or something, I guess you'd be quite close. Or sometimes, you know, some artists will purposefully only play at intimate venues that can only seat so few people, so that it, it, you have more of that personal connection. Yeah. But I think there's something about. Just like you know, the layouts of the festivals, you, you know, you have that flexibility. You can be as far as or as close as you kind of want. Um, sometimes at your own peril, but <laughs> I think you do have that option there. And I think, yeah, and I think just because of the way that you know, just the speakers and the setup and everything, you you, you know, you could be quite far and feel quite close at the same time. And I don't think you get the same thing from the nosebleed seats when you go to an arena or a theater. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. I totally agree. But also, on, on like not on the point of view of the public, but also on the point of view of the artist, I think it must be quite incredible to see a lot of people um, while you perform. But especially that those people came for the festival, um, not per se for your group, as you would in, in a venue, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting to see that all of these people who are not as particularly fans of your group. Uh, all come together and enjoy your music it must be a kind of uh, uh, an interesting feeling that artists themselves have towards the public. Yeah, I, I think for them, I guess, I guess for them it's hard to know what to expect. I mean, of course you have your headliners, and of course you have you know the bands that play mm-hmm. later on in the evening or in the day. So and and they expect to be bigger draws, but sometimes it's difficult. I mean, I've been at a concert where, you know, um, I feel like when we went to work there, I think they did. I mean, may, you know, people might call me out on this, but I feel like when there was the main headliner for the day, yes, there might have been another act at the same time, but they just didn't have that same draw or that same, I'd say, uh, size of a fan base. Whereas um, when I've been to, I've been to Tea in the Park, which is in Scotland, mm-hmm. um, and there was like a really difficult decision because they had multiple headliners on the same evening, and these were, they were, they were different genres. Um, mm-hmm. So that maybe makes the decision easier for some people. But we had, I think, it was Calvin Harris and Mumford and Sons at the same time. So I, you know, I do think with the age of the internet and and for many reasons, people are much more varied in their music taste. So I think is, I know for me, for myself, it was actually really difficult. I think I also skipped seeing the Killers because I had seen them quite a few times live, and I wanted to see someone else I hadn't seen. I think like David Guetta, which says a lot of maybe about how my music taste has changed <laughs> since I've gotten older. But it was these were difficult decisions, you know. And it, but then you went somewhere like Workter, where I feel, um, you know, for instance, when the Foo Fighters were on, I was I I found it very hard to believe anyone wasn't watching the Foo Fighters, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally, totally. That's the interesting part as well, you, because we mentioned different um, types of music. Now, rock workers basically, uh, well, most of all is rock. You also have kind of a little bit of rap, a little bit of techno, um, but mostly rock. Um, but you have other festivals um, like Tomorrowland or or I Love Techno and, and other or Wacken, <laughs> like every every kind of style of music. But it, the concept feels the same. I mean, you you said you went to a David Guetta concert. Do you get the same feeling as you would as 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 a, any festival for other types of music? Um, I think that's a really good. That's a really uh, interesting question. Um, so when I went to this festival in Scotland, it was one of those festivals where um, they're quite big, but they don't really have uh, such a narrow kind of music genre that they're associated with. So it's not quite like a rock genre. It's not like a techno genre. Um, 
So I, th I think one of the things you notice sometimes uh, is you'll notice the age of the people around you. So I think that could be really funny. So uh, you know, um, I I'm gonna be very, I'm gonna be judged a lot for this. But at the festival, Kesha was playing, and I was like, <laughs> oh, Kesha, she has some, you know, I, I, I think she'd be, she'd be really funny live, and I think she'd be a really entertaining person to watch. Mm -hmm. uh, so I went, I went to Kesha. Uh, and it was me and a lot of people who were probably 16 or younger. So that was a bit of a weird experience because I was kind of like, I don't know if I should be here or what does this say about me? <laughs> um, I think that's a problem that you might get depending on what type of music you go listen to. And, you know, if you if you go see a pop artist, you know, yeah. um, hip hop artist. So I think there is a question of maybe like how comfortable you feel. Even if you like that artist, how, how comfortable you feel in your identity and, in, in, you know, uh, in yourself, I guess, to be able to go into these crowds, I'm, you know, you might feel a little out of place in. Um, but I mean, obviously, the vibe is different. There's no, there was no mosh pit at Kesha, which I think nobody will be surprised <laughs> surprised to hear. Um, you didn't. But I don't one. know. <laughs> no, I no. I think that would have been inappropriate. I think it would also have been child abuse uh, <laughs> based on the people around me. But. Um, yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I always like to say you know, I grew up listening to rock and, and metal, and I, I do like to say that you know rock and metal fans are the best fans. You know, I feel like they're very mature, and I feel like they're very respectful, and I feel like there's like a code. You know, they have like a code. You know, in a mosh pit, there's a code, and there's a way things work. Yeah, I can't say I'm a veteran of mosh pits by any means, but uh, you know, I think anyone just needs to watch a mosh pit to understand that nobody's trying to hurt each other. No, indeed, uh, indeed. Just kind of. It's this weird physical exertion, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of a bit like doing a martial art or, you know, doing wrestling or something, you know, it's kind of, you're not, it's just like bodies slamming against each other, but not in the attention of hurting anyone. In the most it's respectful just, way. It's, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. you know, people picking each other up if they fall, you know, it's a rule. There's yeah. a lot of unspoken rules about a mosh pit. You know, if somebody's breaking those rules, they kind of get ostracized and pushed yeah. out of the mosh yeah, pit, yeah. which is Definitely. really cool. So, I mean, you have something like that. Uh, so, I don't know, I, I, feel, I feel a certain camaraderie. Uh, with people like that and, and people who listen to that type of music but I do think a lot of it has to do with age you know maybe you tend to see like you know at rock and metal concerts I would say that I tend to see older uh, you know older fans yeah not 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 not, not that's not a rule but I, I overall that's what I kind of tend to see and you know obviously people act differently compared to you know a 12 or 14 year old you know who's watching uh, Kesha or something right yeah. so I don't know if it's so much how different well, you know, the audiences are different, but I think it's more to do with how you associate with that audience and your feelings about it. You know, you yeah. could tell, you could tell, I did my PhD on emotions, <laughs> <laughs> or you know, psychologists by training were so not so flaky. That's why I love you having a, <laughs> on the show <laughs> these discussions. Well, that's an interesting take, and it's it's kind of funny that you mentioned that um, rock and metal is kind of associated to aggressivity, like. Um, yeah. can be aggressive music um, s some screaming uh, in the songs uh, which you would not specifically have in uh, in techno music or, or any other kind of genre but I do agree that it's it's really respectful um, and that if you like as you said in the mosh bits and it worked her you can really feel that respect and there is like really a limited amount of aggression um, compared to what you can expect having 80 to 100,000 people um, sharing uh, a site. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so that's the interesting yeah. part. Yeah, the dynamics are interesting about how it all works. Uh, you know, even... I can't even say if I've seen a fight, really, at a festival or a concert, you know? 
uh, you know, you have these mosh pits and stuff going on, but you know, you don't really see people break. You know, no, no. It's yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, well, I, to be honest, I already saw like some kinds of uh, aggression because if you go to festivals a lot, it, things tend to happen as would anywhere. Yeah. If you go in the street, you can still like the chance are small, but it, it, you may you may encounter uh, two guys fighting in the street as well. Yeah. Um, but the I guess thing it is depends that, what what street well, at what time you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> indeed. Um, but the thing is also uh, it's maybe more linked to alcohol uh, consumption than something else. Like I've seen the, the most fights I've seen, in, and there are a few of them, but those that I've seen in uh, in festivals or during festivals. Um, is linked to uh, consumption of alcohol or drugs even. So do you think that's a heavy factor on the aggressivity that you see at at, uh, at festivals? I mean, I, I don't think I've seen much to start with, but th th this is the way I would see it. If, if we, now we're getting into the theorizing here. Uh, <laughs> if, if, we, if we assume that at every festival, people are probably drinking, not everyone, but people, you know, a mm. lot of people. Yeah, if we assume that they're over drinking, <laughs> you know, especially defining what part of the day you're at and where you're at. The thing is, if if you know alcohol is a common factor at every festival, and you don't see fights at every festival, then yeah. I think I don't know how much it has to do with the alcohol. Like I definitely don't think it, it probably precipitates the situation, but I don't think it init. You know, I don't think that's the uh, the trigger or anything. No, I don't. I don't think so. No, I think I think the triggers are different. I think maybe it facilitates once yeah. it once something is triggered, it might facilitate you know uh, retaliate yeah. retaliate reaction or something like that. But in terms of you know, if we can assume that everyone's drinking, maybe everyone's drinking a little too much at festivals. I don't know if we could chalk it up to alcohol. I mean, maybe drugs. What are your thoughts on it? Well, um, I would say a little bit more alcohol than drugs because. Like the alcohol with the inhibition level may get you a little bit. For people that are baseline aggressive, may um, may be more inclined to act on it, like uh, throw a punch or uh, drugs. Depending on the type you take, may like um, cool you down, slow you down, um, be part of another of another world um, in which you will not per se look at conflicts unless you're doing a bad trip and, and seeing stuff. <laughs> Um, well, that's an interesting combination, right? Alcohol and drugs. Yeah, which I guess also happens <laughs> at festivals. But we didn't see any um, during our stay at work. Or I, I didn't see any drugs um, because oh, also that's, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah, that's true. But it was also like strict um, regulations. Police were there. They had. Yeah. Uh, uh, dogs sniffing for drugs and everything. So that was the first time I saw such strict regulations uh, yeah. on that festival, which is I mean, good in my sense. To be fair, we can't assume there was no drugs. I think that would be. No, I would not. No, no I mean. <laughs> of course, there was some. I mean, it, it happens at festivals, right? Yeah, you just have to assume there's there's some people doing drugs. Of course, of course, but. Um, but the thing is, um, which surprised me the most is, like, the amount of, um, like, we used to have festivals was a lot about beer and fast food and, like, really, the, let's say, the, the basic geek <laughs> a combination of, of pizza, um, fries, 
um, hamburgers and so on and I was quite um, I was glad glad to see that you have such different choices now and that people really tend to regulate what they eat they ha could have healthy choices such as salads uh, even vegetarian or vegan food um, and a lot of people actually more than I expected ordered water and stuff like that so I was kind of yeah, I was kind of amazed, amazed to see that. So, do you think that our standards of what we think a festival is and the concept of festival changes over time, um, especially with this more vegan, vegetarian, uh, looking for healthy food generation we we see coming up? I guess that 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 just depends on how how much you think food defines a festival experience. So, I mean, there are some festivals where food is, you know, um, food is, you know, the, the how do I say it? Food, food is what people are coming to discuss, people are coming to experience. Um, that's the main topic, you know, the chefs and everything. So, Jen, uh, my girlfriend, went to a festival in England, um, whose name now escapes me, of course. Uh, and it was <laughs> all about food. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think they have other priorities there. Um, so her festival um, I really don't remember what it's called her festival was about food and they got, you know they got a lot of chefs there was Jamie Oliver and I think it was a lot about sustainability and uh, food and you know health and that was the main aim of the festival so I think at a festival like that of course you expect quite a varied selection of food a varied selection of uh, topics uh, presentations discussions but I mean that's obviously not a music festival so but I think this variety of, of vendors and, and options that you do see at festivals when it comes to consumption, um, I think that must have to do with demand. It must have to do with standards. It must have to do with competition. I think that's just what people expect. I think that's. Um, I think I think it sounds weird to say, but I think food is uh, is so popular right now. You know, I think you know if you look at if you look at issues like gluten free, uh, you know, uh, organic versus non organic foods, GMOs. Um, you know, food is a hot topic. Food is a hot you know, a hotter topic than it's ever been. Yeah. And people are, are so conscious and making such conscious decisions when it comes to their food and they're self-regulating and they're self-diagnosing in some cases, you know, when it comes to like gluten-free and celiac disease. Um, so, I mean, I guess the question is, you know, uh, how much, you know, how much do you think about food when you go to a festival? So, Jen obviously has, uh, has some, has some really important feelings about food and and you know the type of food that she wants to eat so for her the food was something that she looked into before she went to work there i on the other hand was not really worried about the food uh not we're really worried what the food would be but just how much of it i could cram into my mouth at any given time uh, so <laughs> it's one of the things you know other than the music i probably look forward to the most but uh it's not something perhaps that i you know i would uh base a decision on going to a festival or not on you know yeah. but what would be what, would, what what are your thoughts on that well, um, well, to be honest, I wouldn't base um, that choice on, on food as well. Um, like, I don't care really uh, what kind of food is present. I'm more there for the music. Um, but of course, I find it, um, let's say, I find it more comfortable in a kind of sense um, that you can have these choices. Like, you don't feel obligated to eat unhealthy food all the time. That's true. Um, or you're pu pushed to buy alcohol because um, beer is much cheaper than the water or so on. Yeah. So I think it's a really um, refreshing take on, on the festival to say, okay, you shouldn't be forced on what type of food uh, you're going to eat during the festival. 
and trying to provide as much choices as possible. I don't think it should be the reason to go to festivals, uh, in my humble opinion. Oh, like uh, music festivals, of course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not food festivals. That, that would be obviously the, the main reason <laughs> to go. Um, but music festivals, it should be um, the music first, right? Um, but I do find it interesting uh, that they they try to like provide a huge variation of food um, to please everyone, and I think that's a really good good thing. No, definitely. I th- I think yeah, I think I don't. It's not. I don't want to take anything away from the festival because I think it was quite impressive and they had really. You know, interesting and diverse food vendors, but I think it's almost a must these days. You know, people's people's diets are so varied, so restricted in some cases. Um, I do think, though, for perhaps if you were vegan, for instance, you might have had some trouble. Um, um, yeah, I think there were some vegan. There was vegan food then, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's a restricted choice compared to the rest. But uh, in a sense, like the, the diversification of the food was more than. Uh, a meat stand, a vegan stand, and a vegetarian stand, right? Uh, in the mm-hmm. sense that they could have just put down exactly the same food um, and disperse it around the, the site. Like, for example, you only had three chains of food. Like, you didn't have hamburger and fries, and then a vegetarian walk, and a vegan salad, for example. And just gave those three choices. But instead, they went to a more... Um, I think uh, original approach, in the sense that you can choose, even if you're vegan, you had, I think you had two different types of, or maybe three different types of vegan choices, like you can have salad or walk mm. or anything else, uh, yeah. same for vegetarian and for meat, it's like, you can go, if you're a vegetarian, you can go to the pizza place and have a vegetarian pizza, or you can go to a walk or an Asian or, or whatever, so mm-hmm. I think they, they really, in that sense, um, offered a lot of choice and even for vegans i think they did, did an effort to have more than one choice yeah uh, no, that's true decide. so I, I did a quick pubmed search while we were speaking because yeah. you know science <laughs> uh, i just found this uh a piece in current opinions in psychology and the title is effects of alcohol on human aggression which oh, i nice. thought was a bit fitting to our discussion uh, so it's by uh, parrot and eckhart um it's actually pretty old. I thought this was new, but that's fine. Uh, oh no, that's weird. It's coming out. Okay, I'm not sure what year this is from. It's I, I think old, it's, but it's coming out. <laughs> uh, it says, you know, on the PubMed, it says 2018, but then I open it, it says to be cited as 2010. So I'm very confused. But oh. <laughs> the some of the some takeaway points are um, while there's no this no dispute that alcohol has an effect on aggression. Uh, they acknowledge that this varies as a function of individual and situational-based instigating and inhibiting factors. Um, so they're saying that you know research has to move beyond whether alcohol causes aggression and instead identify the critical and most potent instigating and inhibiting factors. So they kind of they kind of you know their their final three points are that the pharma- pharmacological effects of alcohol cause aggressive behavior, which is interesting. So I guess they've established that. The alcohol aggression relationship, however, is exceedingly complex, yeah. as evidenced by myriad moderating variables and various putative mechanisms by which aggression is facilitated at in-risk individuals or situations, like maybe when you're drunk at a festival, um, and effective interventions that break this uh, robust and complicated association are limited. So this is actually still um, an area that you know 
where perhaps not enough progress has been made yet, and it's still an area where work there's work to be done, like most in science, to be fair. Yeah, yeah, and I totally agree, and, and I kind of um, agree with the article as well in the sense that I think, as I said before, um, alcohol inhibits, but the the reason to to be aggressive might be indeed with a lot of factors and, 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 mm-hmm. and reasons to be so and even personality um, wise some people have more aggressive tendency than others so I do think that it would require a lot of research to pinpoint every single possible uh, contributing factor to of course uh, the act of aggression so which may explain that there's not a lot of research pinpointing everything no, I think you know it, it is difficult. Of course, it's uh, yeah. You know, an act of aggression happens. You know, in the real world, this is such an uncontrolled environment with so many factors. You know, I mean, we could just guess at a festival. Maybe someone knocks your drink, or maybe yeah. somebody bumps into your partner, or somebody <laughs> and doesn't apologize. Um, maybe someone tries to pickpocket you. I don't know. You know, there's there's yeah. so many factors at play, right? But, yeah, indeed, indeed. And you can't measure all. You cannot control everything, so it's it's difficult. But if we if we do if we do say you know everyone at a fe- you know most people at festivals are drinking, then there's you know I think there's more going on there. So I wouldn't attribute it definitely to the alcohol. I don't know how many festivals have banned alcohol, for instance. Whereas you know um, football games uh, or soccer for our North American fans, soccer games in uh, in England. I don't think you can. Oh no, that's not it. Sorry, um, American football games. They cannot. You cannot buy beer. I think. Oh really? Is that right? Oh. Well, if I'm getting this wrong, uh, I would see how that's relevant to the soccer or uh, football in in the United Kingdom. Yeah, that might be Russian, but I'm just gonna use my good friend Google to check. <laughs> there is definitely a sporting event. Um, oh, this is interesting. Apparently, they're going to be. Uh, for the first time, NCAA-sanctioned beer and wine will be sold at college football stadiums, which hasn't happened before. Uh, so that started, this is an article from last year. So, uh, Apparently last year, adding alcohol was a growing trend at college sporting events, which probably does not sound like a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what is... I'm just trying to figure out which sport it is. But yeah, so that's an interesting idea, right? Yeah, yeah. But then again, I think... It'd be interesting to see how how often aggressive acts still happen at these sporting events, right? Even regard the uh, availability of alcohol, which yeah. is not to say that people don't pre-drink, which is not to say that people don't, Indeed. you know, smuggle alcohol in. But yeah. you know, if we can assume that most people will not be drinking, yeah, and it would be also like I don't know what the percentages of people who are aggressive at a festival. It seems minor. So yeah, is it worth um, getting rid of alcohol for that small percentage? Like, it, does it have a significant effect on the aggressivity that you see in festivals? Mm-hmm. That's a question worth asking, I think. Yeah, definitely. Just trying to figure out where this is, but oh well. Well, somebody, one of our fans might tell us. But Oh, this is kind of interesting, too. So apparently the NBA has the ban on all alcohol sales at the start of the fourth quarter. So that's the final quarter of a basketball game. And, you know, they have like, they, so I found an article by, which is alcohol control policies and practices at professional sports stadiums. Uh, it's a bit old though, it's dated, it's from 2010 uh, by Link and colleagues. And then they were just kind of comparing um, d- 
different practices or different methods that uh, different sporting events have used to try to limit alcohol uh, consumption and how effective they were or not. So it's a study to look up if you're interested on the topic. <laughs> I can't hear you though. Sorry. Oh, there you it, go. Yeah, I just pressed on the mute button. So. Um, That's you could just edit that out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the thing is, you said that in the NBA at the last quarter they don't sell alcohol anymore. But isn't that like, shouldn't that increase? Isn't that giving the risk to increase alcohol consumption dramatically just before the fourth quarter? Because they're gonna like drink as much as they can before alcohol is sold out. That's true, that's true. I'm just wondering. I'm, I would so be actually, interested to see the... the... Yeah, I, that is interesting. I mean, I'm sure people will top up on their drinks, but I guess the idea is that... I mean, if you drink, if you sip your drink, it won't have that. It won't be as bad as chugging it. But even if you chugged it, I guess at the beginning of the fourth quarter, and there's, oh god, I can't remember how long quarters are, but you have that amount of time between the game ending and you leaving the arena, that you know maybe some of those effects might wear off. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. So it is football. Uh, it is fo you know football or soccer where they're not allowed to drink. Okay. In England and Wales, mm. and that came into effect in 1985, actually. Oh wow. And it's a crime potentially punishable by a prison sentence, oh. which is quite interesting. Yep. Well, so at <laughs> least in in in, uh, in the United Kingdom, there is no <laughs> uh, clear link between hooligans and alcohol consumption. Uh, in... <laughs> well, you know, I wouldn't go that far because there's, you know, I'm sure everyone is familiar with the term pre-gaming. Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, so I, I wouldn't go that far. I think there is actually. I have a colleague actually who was studying. Um, I want to say was kind of studying the epidemiology of hooliganism actually in football fans, um, and they're kind of saying how there's you know groups who kind of set out to get into fights with other groups, right? Yeah. Okay. Before they get into these fights, they'll get drunk. They'll use cocaine. Uh, you know, they use these stimulant drugs. Um, so I definitely, I definitely wouldn't say. But again, those are other factors, right? These are people who set out to do this. These are people who actively you know engage yeah. and look for fights uh plan even plan fights right so yeah but that would be comparable to the the drugs they gave um people in the army in, uh, in different wars where they wanted to like give cocaine substances and stuff like that so they would be more keen on more focused on fighting mm. um i think it has to be dissociated from um a spontaneous event leading to aggression rather than a calculated aggressive aggressive event. that's true that's yeah. true um, but so i sorry go ahead yeah just just to come back to the to the festival parts because we had we talked about uh, the food and then stuff but you talked about uh, your girlfriend jennifer going to the food festivals mm -hmm. now i never been to a food festival i think at least um but have you gone to a food festival <laughs> Uh, I do. I do not think so. I've actually. That's not completely true. I've gone to a smaller, much smaller festivals in Bristol, um, so where I'm based, mm -hmm. uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, so I've gone to some food festivals there, uh, but they're not nowhere near on the same scale. Okay. Uh, they're not the camping festivals or anything like that. It's a very different atmosphere. It's a very different, you know, uh, probably group of people. 
but that's the thing because I was wondering okay we we're talking about music festivals and then and then the crowd and the feeling of unity and then everything would you have the same thing at food festivals which seems less likely in my eyes but I never went so um, because I, I don't guess you're camping inside or uh, no they're not but actually actually there was so the festival she went to whose name I'm trying to find now um, mm-hmm. is was actually camping i believe so i'm not sure she did not camp at the festival but i believe there probably was camping at the festival but um so i mean yeah it was i think it was you know it's probably not no one you decide to affect there but it was quite a big festival actually yeah so it's interesting i'm just I'm, i was imagining people like eight, eighty thousand people just <laughs> Not sure it's quite that same scale. No, of course. But it's funny because I was just imagining because if if you have a music in a group, you can sing along or, or dance along or jump along. I was wondering if you have same like um, determined movements or or actions that you can see at a food festival. Because like if you look at just a video that's streaming now, people are jumping at the same time or or headbang at the same time or doing actions that are prescripted, if you will, by everyone. I wonder if you have like food festival. Uh, this behavior. festival is called Feastival. For all your listeners, it's Feastival. <laughs> so you can look that up, which is aptly named. But yeah, I don't know. That's a good point. I mean, I think there's no doubt that you know music unites people. Music brings people together. Music, uh, yeah, it just has that you know magical powers, right? Um, so I'm not sure, like you know, whether. I mean, you know, obviously any festival brings people together who have a similar interest or, or similar reason for being there. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think there's something special about music, right? And what people, you know, what p- music does for people's feelings and and their emotions and uh, just this kind of visceral, sublime experience you can have, right? But maybe maybe some people have that sort of thing at a food festival, right? You just have the best hamburger or something. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'd argue maybe they're a little different. Yeah, yeah, true. Well, which some actually um, advertised as being the probably the best burger you'll ever eat was one of the the claims on, on the festival no i don't think so I don't, no. but um there is a festival um so there's a food chain where it's that that serves uh, southern barbecue called grill stock mm-hmm. uh and they have a music and food festival and they have like eating competitions and they have oh. uh um they have you know sh- um renowned barbecue chefs who come and they have competitions and the crowd gets to taste what they make and things like that. So Excellent. In that case, and that's actually that's actually a very interesting combination between food. I'm sure it's not the only one, but that's a very interesting combination between food and music where um, you might almost argue they're equally as big of draws because I'll be honest, they don't exactly have, you know, the biggest of headliners when it comes to the music, but they have some really interesting food events and options. Mm-hmm. Probably not for vegans, mind you, but, <laughs> you know. Oh, interesting, interesting. Well, I'm just gonna skip off and do something completely different because uh, we talked about doing segments as well in this show. We did. And um, I wanted to create one which is simply called What Have You Been Playing Lately? (laughs) (laughs) Where did you get such a a brilliant idea, (laughs) Lowe? Wow. (laughs) Because, of course, for people who don't know us, uh, Michael and I are also big geeks and, and gamers <laughs> so we well with the spare little spare time we have 
um, we tend to throw ourselves behind a computer or behind a PlayStation. And we, or at a at a table with a board game or, or a card a, game. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We love card games and board games uh, as well. So um, I'm just curious uh, about knowing what you have been playing lately, Michael. Well, funny you might ask. Uh, <laughs> so um, I, so I'm not going to try to keep this video game exclusive. I've also been playing some board games lately. So. Uh, on the PS4, I've been playing some Overwatch. Um, Overwatch is one of the only games, maybe ever, that myself and a lot of my friends from back home uh, in Canada actually all own and actively are playing at the same time. We tried to do it like Assassin's Creed Unity, but by the time we decided to play it again, they had actually took the servers down. So damn you, Ubisoft. <laughs> you <laughs> us. But, um, so we've been playing Overwatch, been playing a bit of that. Um, This season, for whatever reason, I seem to be climbing much higher in SR with every win, which I'm not complaining about. Um, so my ranking is steadily improving from silver, hopefully going to get back to gold, which basically means I'm not very good at the game. Uh, <laughs> oh, actually, I, I've been, I picked up GTA uh, on the PlayStation again. Uh, one, again, a, f a friend of mine um, has uh, actually played quite a bit and now is getting into the online, so I've been you know, fooling around. Uh, yeah. Just like we have in the past on GTA, which is always fun and usually <laughs> catastrophic and completely a failure, but that's fine. Uh, <laughs> when we I, play, at least. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I mean, now it's two instances with two different people, so I think it's just a common trend. Oh. <laughs> um, and then recently, we went over to a friend's house for dinner, uh, which was great, and dinner and board games, of course. Uh, and one that played two games, the first one... Uh, oh, I cannot remember right now what it's called. It was a, a clever, nice, short game about collecting um, gems <laughs> and precious jewels, uh, which would then attract nobles who, if you had the correct combination of jewels, would at attract nobles to come and join you and get you points. And basically, when you had enough victory points, either from the jewels or the... Basically, it was interesting. It was the whole production line. So it was like the raw materials to the production and, the, you know, the transportation of the jewels to the nobles who want to cover them. So mm -hmm. basically, once you collected enough of these cards from these different phases and once you had enough points, victory points, that's how you won the game. It was a nice short game. only took about half an hour and it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, obviously, I need to start taking down names of these things before I decide to talk about them on a podcast. Uh... <laughs> And then the other game we played, which I really enjoyed, was Power Grid. Um, so Power Grid is not a game that's very easy to pick up and play. Uh, it took a little bit of concentration, a little bit of um, a little bit of getting the hang of. But basically, you, you uh, can play of one of two maps, either the United States or Germany, and you start off in one section of the map, and each player starts off in a different section. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to get raw resource, raw materials to power power plants that you need to purchase uh, to power cities that you're trying to move into and build power plants in it, or sorry or move into to want to power um, okay. so three power plants at a time and they may all take different or the same raw resources and the value of the raw resources is based on supply and demand so there's limited every phase of the game or every round there's a limited amount of resources and depending on how many people want those resources the price goes up by how many are being bought every round so that's really interesting um and yeah it's really cool you know they have everything from coal all the way to uh, i think last one was something crazy like nuclear fusion or something cool. um so it was really interesting 
<laughs> yeah, really interesting, clever little game where it was a lot of resource management. Uh, I felt like a little little mini uh, SimCity or, you know, prison architect, but with electricity sort of thing. Um, so it was really well done, really nice little tabletop experience that you could probably imagine would actually translate really well to video games. Um, so I really enjoyed that. What have you been playing lately, Lilo? <laughs> um, well, you'd be surprised, but um, I lately, well, for card games, the uh, last card game I played was Exploding Kittens. Yes! Because uh, Lily bought me the game. <laughs> that is a good reason to play any game. <laughs> <laughs> so, indeed, after the introduction that you made us to the game, um, we, we played a few parties, uh, a few games, which is uh, really, really fun. Um, just for the people who don't know the game, uh, Michael could explain Burden, but basically it's about um, trying to trick your opponent in getting the exploding kitten part, uh, card, sorry, um, by doing some clever maneuver, uh, maneuvers, a bit like you know, like um, the universal game that I guess you know too, Michael. Oh yeah, Uno. Uno, definitely. Uno, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but uh, as far as video games, I've been playing uh, Final Fantasy XIV Online Stormblood, so the new expansion. Oh, that's um, Well, to be honest, I'm not actually playing the expansion because I never got to the highest level uh, okay. in Realm Reborn. So let's say I got me motivated again to play Final Fantasy XIV Online, uh, which is actually one of my favorite MMOs. Um, because I just think it's it's one of the more casual MMOs with a really nice uh, main story, uh, excellent quests, and for once um, you can play it on PS4 and on PC. Uh, That's very so cool. Yeah, cross-platform. It's just one of the only MMOs uh, who does such a thing. Um, mm -hmm. And because I'm on both platforms, it's just so... So convenient for me just to hop on, on and off and go from one system to the other. Um, That's nice. Yeah, it's really fun. Um, unfortunately, um, not a lot of my friends are playing it at the moment, so that, that's a bit of less. But you can play it kind of still in a sort of single player mode. But anyway. Uh, and then I've been playing a bit of Overwatch uh, since you uh, came at, at my house and unlocked a few. Uh, loot boxes <laughs> yes loot boxes like, are addictive oh. yeah. I, I don't even know why because you know most of the time you'll get something for a character you have no interest in playing but you yeah, know that's true that's true but yeah so <laughs> they're they're indeed addictive i haven't been playing for the loot boxes per se but <laughs> i've been um briefly watching the it's not the international uh, competition it's, i think it's called the world comp cup Nice. Of Overwatch, so which basically has a few countries battling for uh, best uh, team in the world. It's kind of interesting. Very nice. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I've been playing a little bit of Overwatch, but I, I'm, I'm always uh, I have Overwatch on PC and on PS4, uh, so I tend to go from one to the other. But I think I prefer to play it on PC though. <laughs> Oh, interesting. I I do. I haven't I haven't played on PC mostly because I don't have a PC that can run it well. Um, but that is something that I, you know. I I think that's something that you do hear from a lot of Overwatch players how different the game is. One thing that struck me actually was that 
um, apparently there's less children playing on PC just because of the you know environments on PC tend yeah. make it so that you know you need a you know somewhat decent PC to play it, which might not be accessible to you know every 12 year old who's playing yeah. on PS4. Uh, so that's actually one of the draws. I've heard about also just the increased mobility, the improved um, accuracy. That's something that I think would be quite interesting. But, you know, it's funny when you talk about the crossplay on Final Fantasy XIV because, you know, then you have a company like Blizzard yeah. with, you know, you, you could argue all the resources in the world who, who just don't have an interest in doing that. Of course, maybe for a game like uh, FPS, like Overwatch, that's there's more practicalities that are difficult. Yeah. But for something like Diablo 3, you know, that's, that's something that you could, you would imagine they could have maybe tried to do. Yeah, I, I totally agree in the sense that um, technically it would be possible for Diablo in the sense that um, it's not, as you said, FPS doesn't have to be that accurate. Um, but the problem is with uh, the, the mechanics and I think they, I'm pretty sure they had the idea of uh, making it cross-platform. Um, but they actually had to change the versions of PS4 quite dramatically in the sense that even spells of your character had to change um, the way aiming works and everything. So that's maybe that's the problem um, in those games. Oh, Although I must say that because there is no PvP exactly. in Diablo, it shouldn't really matter, right? Exactly. That's right. That's exactly how I feel. It's funny because um, another game I've just dabbled in recently on the weekend was Marvel Heroes Omega. Um, yeah. I, I, I tried off, ten I, minutes uh, just an hour ago. Oh, what did you think? Um, well, uh, I haven't gone far. Maybe just did the introduction. Um, but I, I was actually um, quite surprised in, in, in a good sense. Um, I'm not biggest fan of Marvel, all, all the universe of Marvel, I'm more of a DC Sorry. guy. Sorry to Ooh, disappoint. Yeah. I'm a Marvel guy. Oh, oh First we'll Clash. After the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a Clash of Marvel against DC. Then. <laughs> um, no, but, um, but I was quite surprised because the way they uh, introduce you in the game is really well. Um, it, it seems to play quite casually and, and interestingly like that with a loot system and it plays I think more smoothly than Diablo on the on console um, which surprised me to be honest um, but I guess I should wait to play a bit more high level content in order to have a real um, opinion about it because I think that's where the, a game such as Diablo or, or the Marvel Omega um, should really set itself apart is in, in the more high level or end game uh, s scenarios. Definitely. Well, one thing I found interesting is that so I think the game originally launched on PC in 2013 yeah. mm -hmm. and only now, of course, recently came to the uh, consoles. Um, but what's interesting is I think that's a game actually where that received a lot of backlash for not being cross platform or specifically at least not having progress cross platform. So that's another thing I find interesting because. Um, so many of the people argued about this that they said they spent, you know, they literally put, you know, maybe hundreds of hours in this game on PC, and you know, if they if they want to play on their console, they had to restart from nothing. Yeah. But see, that's another gripe I have with Blizzard. Fine, you can't, people can't play cross-platform, but I do not understand how the, you know, how progress, how um, items, how account information cannot be shared across platform. It boggles my mind. In fact, you have to sign into Battle.net 
to play mm-hmm. on the console version. So I don't understand why they can't. I, I you know I understand this would take more servers. Maybe you know maybe it comes down to finance. They they don't feel like um, they get anything back. You know the people there wouldn't be more uh, people buying the products just because they could play. Just because their progress was saved across the consoles and the order platforms, maybe that's just maybe it just comes down to money, like most things. But I just find I really disappointed in this day and age that you can't just you know send those parcels of information across. Yeah, I, I totally agree, and it's one of my biggest disappointment in Overwatch is that the loot boxes you have don't unlock for your like uh, account on PC or PS4, depending on where, where you unlock it, um, which I think would technically be no problem at all. Um, doing so for the company but indeed maybe it's just because of the finance that the economy system that they want although I must say that I don't think they will lose I uh, prob- they probably crunch the numbers but yeah um, it, but would it have cost them much more to do it no I don't think so uh, in the sense that well maybe in the security level like um, if you could communicate I guess that that it maybe I'm not a security expert, uh, but maybe it's a weaker link if you have um, the ability of a console sending data to um, a server to unlock something on PC or vice versa. Yeah. Um, but I think a company as Blizzard should have no problem <laughs> of doing um, or implementing such a thing. Mm. Uh, saying that, I jumped it back into D3 with the uh, release of the Necromancer pack. Yeah. Actually got my Necromancer to 70. And granted, mm-hmm. I'm playing on American servers because that's where I know the most people. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, and which I do the same thing actually, for, to be fair, for Heroes of the Storm. But, you know, still one of these things I'm kind of like, this should be a little better. It should be a little less laggy. And of course, there's people who play who are playing on their home servers, you know, so on the server that's actually most geographically close to them, and they are also experiencing a bit of lag. I think it's, I think what Blizzard probably does is it took away servers from Diablo 3, which is obviously kind of a dying product, and probably allocated those servers to other games. Except, you know, of course, if you're going to release a huge new pack that you're hoping will be widely successful and draw a lot of players back into the game, you'd expect them to re, you know, reassociate or, you know, re-delegate those servers. But, not sure. Yeah, I think it, it, it's not really easy to um, to reallocate uh, reallocate servers like that because of the the only hardware, but the uh, the software it demands. So I'm not sure if it's that easy to do so. Uh, once again, I'm not an expert, um, especially because they have to buy new servers for the demands. For example, um, the World of Warcraft servers, right? which um, got more and more demanding um, because of the expansions, because of the, the well, updates they did to the game. They're, they're actually selling the first servers um, as, a, as a piece of history uh, at a certain point because they know. don't use it anymore. So are you saying that they don't really reallocate servers? you think that doesn't happen very often? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> I can't say because I'm not the expert. Yeah, but I do think it's a bit more tricky than people think. Like, it's okay. not that you can have this server and they can look, oh, let's let's use it as a as an under game server. Like, just put a one uh, command line and just make it run for another game. Mm-hmm. I think it's more complicated than that. 
Um, but I don't think it's impossible, of course. Um, I'm not, just not sure that they um, use their resources that way. Mm -hmm. Well, I... So I guess before maybe we wrap up, one thing is I did, I, I'll admit, I did, I did a bit of research before this, um, the podcast about um, one thing that's really struck me about Rock Verkter was just the um, the size of it. So it was by far the biggest festival I've ever been to. And apparently the numbers can fluctuate from, you know, 80,000 to, you, you you mentioned there might be over 100,000? Uh, around 100,000. 100,000. So, I mean, that's. I mean that's uh, magnitudes more I think, than any festival I've been to. So the one in Scotland was Teen the Park. I don't think it hits numbers that big. Uh, let's do a quick search. I think it's one of the biggest festivals in in Europe. I'm sure, maybe in the world as well. Do a quick search as well. Yeah. So I mean, one of the things that struck me is if you have a you know just what are the logistics behind a festival that big? You know. So Teen the Park is about. Uh, this isn't very clear. This is attracts up to two hundred fifty-five thousand people, but I'm assuming that's across the days. Uh, the site has a capacity. Oh, that's nineteen ninety-four. <laughs> okay, so actually they had to move to a new site recently, so that's a bit interesting. But um, yeah, it's not clear how many. But I, I do think obviously Rock Victor is probably one of the biggest. So one of the things that really struck me was the logistics um, of the festival. And I was just kind of wondering what goes on behind the festival. Like how 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 do you make this work? Because you know, I think if we learn anything from Ja Rule's Fire Festival that made social media headlines recently, it's that there's so many things that could go wrong at the festival. Of course, there's a lot of things that went wrong at that festival that probably could have been. Uh, forecasted or prevented or you know even if people were more experienced or working there it might not have happened at all uh, but there, there's still I think it's just such a staggering amount of manpower and money that goes into um, making festivals run so I did some research <laughs> uh, and so I did a lot of research on uh, the cost behind festivals just the, the facilities um, yeah. You know, just the type of supplies you need. So I think uh, things when uh, or challenges, I guess, or issues when you organizing a festival include legality, financial viability, discoverability, infrastructure, and health and safety. So I think the things I'm going to talk a bit about now are the financial viability and the infrastructure and health and safety. So um, looking at some things, they were talking about this is mostly so I looked I looked for articles about this and of course mostly I found were English articles so a lot of them are about festivals in England unsurprisingly um, so they were mentioning that you know um, festivals are actually really risky so you know business you know a smart businessman will not run a festival to try to make money so they were also saying that kind of um, before the festival even happens. Um, They've already lost almost a quarter of their ticket sales. So in the UK, tax is 20%, and then 3% goes to the PRS, who collect money owed to songwriters for performances of their songs. So right there, they've already lost almost a quarter of their earnings, and that's before they've even booked any bands or installed any, uh, here they say, installed any portable loos or toilets. Um, what I think was staggering is they're saying that for a 10,000 capacity festival, Power will cost between sixty thousand and a hundred thousand pounds, so that's ten thousand. So I mean, I don't know, I don't know how it works incrementally, but I mean, you know, Rock Verkter is like eight times that, right? Yeah. 
So that's you know that's a staggering amount of money. Uh, and and this festival, they said they spent about thirty thousand. So this is festival number six. Um, I'm not really familiar with, but they said they would spend up to thirty thousand pounds just to take away waste from the festival site. Um, wow. So they said at the Isle of Wight Festival, security and police cost one million pounds, uh, and that they have to employ by five, about five thousand people to lay the amenities uh, and and prepare a, a greenfield site, so sites that are held maybe on like you know fields or farmlands. Um, they mentioned for that festival they actually spent two hundred and fifty thousand pounds building roads to the site of the park because. He, he cautioned against parking cars on grass. That could go really wrong, I guess, if you have a lot of rain. Yeah. We were very lucky because we did park on grass, um, and mm-hmm. there was some rain, but it was just on the final final day or two, so we, we were quite lucky. Um, they were saying one way that they actually generate a lot of profit is by uh, selling, um, uh, selling, how do I say this, like high-value camping, so or camping where you know they have like the infrastructure already set up for you. They might have yeah. to camp as they had a Verkter. So then I looked back at what the Verkter options were, and they have, uh, so like we did, we stayed at the Hive, mm-hmm. but then there was the Hive Resort where they had a lot of amenities for you. They had um, a lot, of, in, in most instances, they had tents set up for you. So for instance, um, a two-man tent cost 250 euros, seven-man TP tent, 1,316 euros. Um, then another, a nicer... Uh, a nicer arrangement where you actually had two made up beds and bed linen, as well as wooden floors, chairs, lamps. That was a thousand one hundred seventy four euros, um, and I think that that was the uh, the pinnacle. That was the pinnacle of comfort, of, which of course is quite startling for you know a festival camping. Um, but apparently, this is a way that the festival actually recoups, makes a lot of money, um, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, indeed. Um, the interesting part is that it was sold out. It's like, mm-hmm. like um, because yeah, every one of those options were sold yeah. out. So initially, I thought that it shouldn't have much success because I mean, the ticket itself it's like um, already two hundred fifty euros, mm-hmm. um, and then you still have to pay thousand hundred seventy four euros extra mm-hmm. just for like camping for four days, um, and it's not like uh, you're paying a hotel. It, it no. still is a kind of um, temporary uh, <laughs> <laughs> lodging, um, which is really, it can be really expensive for uh, average people, um, people with an average income. <laughs> I, will, <laughs> I wouldn't say negatively, not average. But. Of course, because I was thinking about this when we were at the festival as well. I was kind of looking around, I'm like, you know, this is, you know, we are we are surrounded by people who are to some extent privileged or to some extent well, you know, well off that they can spend, you know, a sizable amount of their income on, the, you know, one of these tickets. Perhaps maybe if you come for a day, it's 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 less, it's it's more affordable. But you know, the four days, they weren't bank breaking. But I mean, obviously, we're we're in some privileged positions where we have some, you know, steady jobs with decent income. Well, studies studies not true, but we have jobs <laughs> with with you know fair income. But you know, this is something that you know you look around. and you, you are seeing a subset of society. You are seeing some of the more privileged, more, more middle, upper middle class, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, what I found is interesting is you mentioned ticket prices. Apparently, um, t- ticket sales only go to pay for 60% of running of a festival, which is what one festival organizer said. And he yeah. said that the 40% is made up from the, the fees from traders and caterers. Mm-hmm. 
sponsorship money and the bar profits because at this, this particular festival they run their own bars, which I think might be the case of, of Verkter too. They obviously have sponsored beer, yeah. but I think the festival might run the bar itself. Um, yeah, I think the, the festival indeed runs the bar mm-hmm. um, because they don't have any um, affiliation that is shown. It just says drinks. So... Um, but the beer is definitely sponsored because it's Jupiter. Yeah. yeah, it's Jupiter, which has uh, well, Jupiter has its own stage, by the way. Oh wow! Yeah, so I mean, there's that sponsorship, but that, but that sponsorship is also, of course, um, contributing to the revenue that they might that the organizers expect to get from yeah. from the show. What's interesting too is they did mention the effect of weather, and they were saying that wow. You know, on a good year, you could sell as many as, you know, they said they sold as many as uh, over 1,000, 1,200 day tickets, but that the year before when it was raining, they only sold 200, which is an insane difference. So they said, they said that, that that amounted to a shortfall of 80,000 pounds. You know, and I think that's not something that we think about. You know, we're kind of, you know, once once you have a tent, once you're there for the long haul, you're committed. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, for tickets that, for, for festivals where there's still a lot of day tickets available, Weather is probably a huge factor. Yeah, but this is the thing. I think it's, um, well, you build up success because Werther has been there since 1975, mm-hmm. 1974 maybe even. Um, so with their system, what happens is that the tickets are almost always sold out um, even before, like months before the festival actually uh, takes place. So that's the interesting part is that people even buy uh, a day ticket if one of the the groups they like is playing. Uh, that's true. But maybe smaller festivals might be more of a problem or yeah. it's something that they might encounter more. Whereas, I mean, Verkta, where you're worried about the, the festival selling out somehow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it might be, yeah, it might be a bit of a different dynamic there. Yeah, so I think it's, it's I, I don't know the numbers. Or I, I don't have the art, article in front of me, but I think that the budget... Uh, of festivals depends on their um, like what stage and what kind of experience they have what reputation they have mm-hmm. because I, I if I would guess I, I would say that starting a festival is really hard and the budget will come more from tickets or you have to rely more on how many people we buy tickets or that I estimate um, more than a worker who knows that nah, we'll, we'll get rid of the tickets so mm-hmm. I think so it's interesting too differently no, definitely. I was just going to say that I think um, it's interesting because like a small tournament has to worry about operating at a loss or they might not actually make back all the money that they spent, you know, to put the festival on. Whereas I think uh, I would imagine that's not the same concerns of a big festival, like something that's so established like Verkter. But actually, another big distinction between a big and a small festival is that small festivals... Um, they they really feel the string because they say that, uh, artists are demanding more money and they can command it because there's so many festivals out there. So that they said that for some of the bigger events, it becomes what they refer to as a financial arms race because there's only a handful of headline level acts that they know that can play rival festivals uh, off against each other to to get the highest fee possible. However, um, then they spoke to the organizer at Glastonbury, mm-hmm. um, which is arguably the biggest festival in the world. Uh, and he said that apparently um, some bands will actually take a loss, a financial loss, 
to play at the festivals because it's the biggest the biggest profile. Mm-hmm. So he was in, he was actually uh, citing uh, an instance where U2 played, mm-hmm. and he said they didn't do it for the money. It cost them two million pounds to play here. He said and it's common for major artists with huge shows to lose money playing Glastonbury. He said Paul McCartney actually lost a lot of money playing there, cool. but they said that the exposure is just so big, and they just said that you know for the artist just the just the experience of playing at you know what's probably the biggest festival in the world is is you know un, unmissable I guess you know yeah and probably it's an indirect way of uh, of getting revenue back maybe more albums sold afterwards or mm-hmm. stuff like that so it may be investment investment as well mm-hmm. especially for like maybe not Paul McCartney and so on because he's already known right yeah uh, they're but, established. Yeah, but smaller groups may have like, um, like if they're on the main stage of a big festival, may mm-hmm. see more people buying their CDs or, or so on, or going to their concerts or mm-hmm. whatever. Well, that's true. I think that's especially true for you know like the acts that we'll see throughout the day. If you go, if you if you get a spot in like Glastonbury or any of these big festivals, like we've worked there. If you get a spot, you know that first the first act we saw, who's <laughs> ironic, whose name we can't exactly remember right now, but the first act we saw when we went to Verkter, what was he like? This eighteen, nineteen year old guy. Yeah, it was probably this is definitely the biggest stage of his life, you know. And it, no matter how many people were in the barn, there was probably more than he's ever played to, yeah. ever at that point, right? So I mean, that's that's completely invaluable. So I mean, those people probably play for little, but have so much to gain, really. Yeah. True. True. Yeah, and as we discussed when we were there, it's like um, seeing Arctic Monkeys, which was mm-hmm. one of their first, well, not first, um, but uh, when they were lesser known and, and they, they played like a, um, their first songs on, on, on stage. And it, it's kind of funny to see that they became, over the years, the main act uh, mm-hmm. in the long run, which is kind of nice to see. Of course, yeah. Well, I think that's quite a special moment or, a, you, you know, such a unique or lucky experience where you happen to catch a band who then goes on to, you know, incredible stardom. You know, I, I yeah. think that's, that's very hit. I, it could be very hit or miss, but obviously you, you nailed it, nailed it on the head with that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Just... I think what's crazy too. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, please. I was just say what's crazy too, is just the, uh, the amount of people to put on a festival, right? So, before the festival, Glassmer says they had 34,000 workers, including 400 first, Aiders to put it all together, uh, where they use a, a huge 32-ton roller to flatten the ground, <laughs> oh. uh, and then, you know, just just the number the number of people. They said that there's um, they oversee a crew of 2,600 people responsible for 12,500 performers, artists, and stall holders, oh. um, and then there was somebody who was responsible for issuing 27,000 passes to the site. But what's really interesting, considering the number of people that you need, is that what I found on, on Verkter's website, which says that the rock work does not call on individual volunteers. The festival has always drawn on a broad spectrum of clubs and associations from the area in and around Verkter. Yep. I found that was mind-boggling because, I mean, you you know, you can't, you know, like I said, obviously the numbers to put on such an event are, are huge. And I just found it incredible that you can't actually just... You know, sign up to go volunteer director like you could maybe like a Glastonbury or something like that. Yeah, that's one of the nice things uh, about Vector is that you have indeed all these communities, like uh, the local football clubs and, uh, and stuff, like, that, and, like all these organizations that, that try to help. And because it's it's kind of a pride 
um, of the of the area? village, yeah, of the mm. area. And so, and, and even some of the clubs try to make money off it. So when you go to outside of this festival site, you can have you can still have some drinks or some some food, um, and it actually supports the local uh, associations because they are effectively um, putting up those stands. And so they try to get their uh, annual fees off there, so which is really nice because you're not only uh, giving money to the organization, you also like the, the the festival itself, but you're also contributing to the local um, groups and community, which is really mm-hmm. nice. Um, I think they really have this good trade-off between um, using the site and being annoyed because of the noise and um, being there because of the like creating a name for the uh, the local area. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting because, you know, every every location will probably get the noise, right, of a festival. But, yeah. I mean, you might argue that not every venue, like not every festival or every event is run so that it gives back to the community. So I think even Glastonbury, they said it brings a lot of business to that small town every year. But mm. um, so I'm originally from Montreal, as you know. Yeah. Um, and you too actually played in Montreal among other bands. They play at this area... Um, Parc Jean Drapeau, which is um, an island kind of off, sorry, of off the coast of Montreal, really, really close off the coast of Montreal. Uh, it's connected by metro or tube, so obviously it's quite close. Um, and um, there what you have is you get a lot of people complain about the noise pollution, but actually you don't really have the same sense of community or the contribution to community. So all these events that are run there... There isn't really local vendors. There isn't local businesses. There isn't, you know, I mean, they, they might draw a lot of people to Montreal. So they might so might draw people to the downtown area. And so they might have tourists who spend more. And that's been a big, actually, motivation for Montreal to keep their Formula One race, uh, despite in, in the face of a lot of protests and a lot of question, you know, questioning whether the investment was sound or not to improve the track and whatnot and maintain the track. Um, but, yeah, but with these big concerts, you know, it's debatable. Because, you know, you have a lot of, like, residents and everything who, you know, to, uh, according to them, might have to suffer through a concert they don't particularly wanted to hear in the first place. <laughs> um, but, you know, these are, you know, when they have them at these isolated sites, they're not really contributing to the community, maybe, and, unless mm-hmm. you, you argue about the tourism. But that's not the local community. That's the city at large, right? Yeah, and it's in the coffers of, you know, big business. So so that's interesting. I think that is something that's admirable. Maybe that's something also that more that's more common at festivals rather than other sort of shows or events. Mm-hmm. That's something that's another admirable point you can take away from that. Yeah, true, true. I totally agree. And anyway, even even if you're looking at the, the, the local communities and so on, and the festivals that try to promote local communities or give money to them, um, well, the, the city and, 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 and the government also wins from it due to taxes and everything. So I think it, it's only a win-win situation for everyone mm-hmm. in that sense. Um, but thank you very much, Michael, for the conversation. Um, we're going to wrap it up because it's been an hour and 15 to 16 minutes now that we've been on Pure quality. Pure quality. <laughs> pure quality. Pure quality of talking about festivals, food. Um, games. The finer things in life. And, <laughs> so, um, we'll just, uh, as a closing statement, as usual, um, we're going to try to do these shows a little bit more often. Um, we're still trying to find our rhythm, aren't we, mm-hmm. Michael? We are. 
but as this is the first show, I think we're doing a great job. We we are on point. <laughs> <laughs> we should have a round of applause for ourselves. <laughs> That's it. Um, no, but indeed. So um, I think it's going quite well as well. Um, and we'll definitely have a topic for the next time. Um, I think usually I should close the sessions with the topic for our next talk. But, but it's as a surprise. We, <laughs> it's a surprise, as we don't know yet. Um, but we'll try to do this weekly um, and try to get the podcast or uh, video up um, as soon as possible. Um, but I'll, as this one is a long one, I might close it up in, in little sections, though, um, in little videos, just to create teasers for the next one. Sounds good. Okay, awesome. Well, Michael, thank you a lot. I'm going to sleep now, as it's almost one o'clock here. So <laughs> that's how we roll. That's how we roll late. <laughs> well, thanks you for listening, guys, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you very soon. Yeah, and if you have any comments or suggestions, please feel free to leave comments if this is indeed uploaded <laughs> at some point. Um, or you can go to thescientifics.com. Uh, which is currently on hold, but you can still contact us through the site via email or Twitter or whatever social media Michael fiddles with. <laughs> <laughs> we do have a Facebook page as well. We are we are on it. Yeah. Um, so I guess you can just... I'm, I'm not uh, a big Facebook uh, user, so I guess you can just type in the scientifics and reach the page, right? That is correct. Okay. Wow, you see. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So thanks for listening all and uh, hope to see you soon. Bye.